Morning, Doxa. Uh, if you got a Bible, pull it out. We are in Acts, Acts 8. We're going to continue our series. My name is David, um, also known as the skinny pastor on staff. Uh, I look a little different than the other two guys who are up here, right? <laughs> okay. Um, we're jumping back into this series, and, and it's been a little bit of, of a, a while, right? Because we kind of stopped this series a little bit ago, and then did a Christmas series, and then kind of did this like vision series on, on prayer last week. And we're jumping back into this story of Acts, and just kind of recap everyone kind of where we've been, because even Steffi, like last week, was like, hey, what are we? Are we in John? What book are we in? And I was like, what the heck? No, we're in Acts, guys. Come on. We remember this, right? Steffi, you remember that? Okay. Jesus, I'm just kidding. I'm totally thrown under the bus. Okay. Jesus rises from the grave, right? The beginning of Acts. He rises from the grave. It's amazing. And he's with his followers doing all kinds of different things. And he tells them, he's like, hey, I'm about to actually leave earth. I'm going to go back up to heaven, but it's okay because I'm going to send you someone who's going to be your helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, but you're actually going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You're going to take this story of what I've done, the gospel, and you're going to start to spread this everywhere in Jerusalem, but not just in Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we watched in Acts 2 as the Spirit of God came to dwell inside the people of God. And we watched actually as like the very first Christian church was formed. And we watched as like the very people, the people whose hands were like freshly stained with like the actual blood of Jesus. We watched as those people found forgiveness and life and salvation through the man who rose from the grave, the man that they had murdered. And the kingdom of God, it begins to spread. And it's at this point, the movement has grown into like thousands of people. Like there's thousands of people who have chosen to follow Jesus and are kind of packed in this city of Jerusalem. It's beginning to get like this, this, this movement is starting to grow. And, and so last time we were in Acts, we were in Acts 7. And if you remember that, this is the story of Stephen, right? This man filled with the spirit of God. And he's so filled with the spirit of God that the enemies of God, the only thing they can do to kind of shut him down is kill him. And so this man named Saul, right, kind of stands over his murder, his execution, his martyrdom. And what ends up happening after this is like Saul, this kind of religious leader, begins to bring massive persecution on the church. And so Acts 8 is this story of like the, the church is like growing and it's, it's getting white hot and as persecution comes, the church actually begins to spread out from Jerusalem to kind of flee persecution. And the thing that Jesus said would happen begins to happen where they're not just witnesses in Jerusalem, but they actually begin to be Jerusalem's, begin to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the story we're in today, Acts 8, is a, kind of a, is a story that has like two parts. Okay, the first part is about the gospel kind of spreading to the city of Samaria. Okay, the city of the Samaritans, like this really important kind of next near culture from Jerusalem. They're not Jewish, they're Samaritans. And so what happens when the gospel jumps from this culture it started in into this new culture. That's the first part of the story. But then the second part of the story is what happens when the gospel comes to a man named Simon. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, pull it out. We're going to read the beginning of Acts 8. So we're going to skip the first line because that kind of goes with the, the first part of the story. And we'll just start here. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men, they buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. 
and he was entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, they went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all had paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. And even Simon himself was baptized. Or even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to pause here for a second. We're going to keep reading the rest of the story in a little bit, but I wanted to stop and take a minute to look at what happens here. Okay, the story's going to continue, and it's going to actually kind of focus on Simon and kind of his response to this moment where the apostles come and lay their hands and they receive the Holy Spirit. The rest of the story is going to be about Simon's response to that, but I wanted to stop and look at kind of these verses here. Um, and the reason I want to unpack this section is because there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of different sections of the church or different people who claim Christianity who will actually take these verses right here, the ones we just read, uh, and they will take them to say something that's very unchristian. And they will take them to kind of follow a different set of teaching other than the teaching that Jesus has given us. And so what they essentially people will do is they'll take this text and they'll say, what this is really happening here is this. Is it's like, yes, you need Jesus. And yes, you need to have faith in Jesus. But if you really want to have like the fullness of a spiritual experience, what you need is something in addition to Jesus. Right? Because these, these people, they have, they've believed in Jesus, they've been baptized in Jesus' name, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles come and lay their hands on them. And so some people will take this and say, look, this is like Christianity 2.0. This is like this fuller spiritual experience. And so what you need to do is you need to not just believe in Jesus, but you need to also find people who've also had this kind of advanced spiritual experience. You need to find them and have them help give you this higher, loftier version of Christianity. Okay, some people will take this text to say that. That simply following and receiving Jesus is not all that you need. But what you really need is you need to have some people come and lay hands on you so that you can receive the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. What you really need is you need to have some people come and you need to have them lay hands on you so that you can receive this kind of second filling of the Holy Spirit. Or some people will say that what you really need is you need to be baptized in the Spirit, that your normal Christian baptism wasn't actually enough if you want to experience the fullness of what God has for you. Okay? Some people will take these verses to mean that. And this isn't like an obscure uh, thing that only a few people believe somewhere in the world. No, this is teaching that actually fills like many of the books that sit at the very top of the New York Times bestselling list in the category of Christianity. Okay? 
When you go through Barnes & Noble and you go into the Christianity section, the books that have all the people's faces on them, many of them say exactly this. So it's not a small issue. It's very pervasive, but it's also not a small issue in what it means. Because what Paul says in Galatians, is he says that if you actually add anything to Jesus, if you add anything to Jesus and faith in him alone, it isn't just that you've distorted the gospel, but he says that you've actually abandoned the gospel. Okay, so it's really important. We don't take these verses to mean that. But what do we make of this passage, okay? Because it's confusing, okay? And I'll just tell you right away, because as I was first reading this, I was like, oh man, I wondered when we we're going to get to this part of Acts. Because it's, it's strange. And it doesn't fit the normal pattern that we see in the rest of the Bible. So what is actually happening? Okay, well, for the very first time, the good news of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom of God has started to spread out from its normal home in Judaism and in Jerusalem, and it started to spread out into this new culture, into this new kind of religious center of Samaria. And what happens is that Philip, he takes the gospel to these people, and they, they believe in Jesus, and they're even baptized in his name, but it isn't until Peter and John, two of the leading apostles of kind of the Jerusalem church, come down, and they lay hands on them. It's not until that moment that the text says that they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, a few observations, okay? A few observations that we need to make. This is not the normal pattern that we see in the rest of the book of Acts, and it's not the normal pattern that we see in the rest of the New Testament. The normal pattern that we see is people who hear the gospel, they choose to believe in Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit as a result of their faith in Jesus. And then they're baptized as a response to what God has done in their life. Because that's the very first thing we notice. Is this isn't some prescriptive event of how Christianity is going to work in the whole rest of the story. It's a unique event that happens as the gospel breaks out into the very first different culture. It breaks out of its home in Judaism, and Jesus' kingdom begins to move outward into these different cultures, these different kind of ethnicities. Second thing we notice. This takes place in a very specific city, Samaria, okay? Now, this doesn't really mean a lot to us, but this is actually an incredibly important part of the story is where this takes place. Because the thing we need to know, and there's a lot we could know, but just really simply it's this. Jews and Samaritans, they hate each other. Okay? These are groups that are at war with each other culturally, with their religions. They are completely at odds with one another. And the Samaritans said that Jerusalem wasn't the right place to have a temple. So they had their own mountain with their own kind of temple, their own kind of system of worship. They had kind of competing religions. And so even though the Samaritans traced their lineage back to Israel, they used to be kind of part of the people of God. They had kind of been cast off as kind of these, these outcasts. They weren't part of the people of God anymore. They were off doing their own thing. And so they didn't come down to the Jerusalem temple to worship. They weren't part of the Jewish system of religion. They had their own thing, their own mountain. There were separate things. And it was a really big deal. In this moment, the gospel coming to the Samaritans Peter and John, the Jewish leaders who come down to them. The question is, what are they going to do? What are they going to say? Because there has always been animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Because up to this point, the Christian movement is Jewish. Like, it is Jewish through and through. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He fulfills the prophecies of the Jewish scriptures. Everyone who follows Jesus follows a Jewish diet, follows Jewish laws. He came to Jerusalem. He preached in the Jewish temple. 
So up to this point, the movement of Christianity is entirely and completely Jewish. And so the question is, what happens when Christianity, this good news of Jesus, all of a sudden enters into a different culture that is not Jewish? That's what this moment is about. It isn't about a higher spiritual experience, kind of a Christianity 2.0 that they needed to receive in addition to Jesus. No, what this moment is about is it's about saying something powerful about the nature of Christianity and the nature of the kingdom of God. Because what happens in this moment is Peter and John, they come down from Jerusalem and they don't tell the Samaritans that they need to become Jewish. He doesn't tell them that. He doesn't tell them they need to start traveling to the Jewish temple and start following the Jewish purity laws. He doesn't tell them to kind of abandon their culture and become like them. No, but because the Samaritans have received Jesus, they lay their hands on them, they pray for them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. What's happening in this moment is like the story is saying, if you have Jesus and Jesus alone, then you are part of the family of God, period. This group of people who've been ostracized and cut off from the true people of God and the family of God for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years When they put their faith in Jesus, that is all that they need. And for the apostles to bless them and pull them into the family of God. In other words, these verses are saying, Jesus plus nothing equals full inclusion into the family and promises and blessings of God. And that's a really, really important distinction. Okay, There's a lot more we could say about this. But this is one of the major things that sets Christianity apart from every single other religion in the world. Because Christianity does not come with any cultural or ethnic identity attached to it. It doesn't come like that. It's not its package, right? What kind of clothes do Christians wear? What kind of food do they eat? Where are their holy sites? Where are their pilgrimages? Where is their temple? Where do they live? Where is kind of the focus of this thing? What language do they pray in? These are questions that every single other religion in the world has an answer to. Christianity doesn't have answers to these questions. Who are their priests? Who are the Christian priests? Well, the answer is they don't have any. Jesus is himself the high priest and the mediator between God and man. Where is their temple? Where are their holy sites? Well, they don't have any because we all carry the spirit of God within us. The place where heaven and earth meets together is not a geographic place. It is a person whose name is Jesus. And he follows us where we go because he's put his spirit within us. Every single other religion has a human-created epicenter. And from that kind of initial created human locale, it radiates outwards. But there is no defined culture of Christianity. There is no epicenter. Through the years of human history, the white-hot center of Christianity has moved all over the world. Right now, it is in the West, but probably in 50 years, it will be in Africa and it will be in Asia. Christianity is not tethered to any human culture because it is not born out of any human culture. Christianity is born by the Spirit of God. And unlike every single other religion that at its core is destructive to cultures as it enters them, Christianity is not destructive, it's restorative. We live in Madison, okay? Madison is filled with very liberal, secular people who one of the things they hate about religion is that when religion spreads, it destroys the culture it goes into. That is something that we can join arms with them and say, yeah, that's not okay. 
Christianity is the only religion that doesn't do that. It doesn't do it. The Samaritans don't become less Samaritan because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They become more Samaritan. They become more fully and truly, uniquely them. Okay? That's the gospel coming to the Samaritans. Okay? And that was a long first half of the sermon, okay? But it's about to turn its focus back to this one man, Simon, okay? So go back to verse 9, okay? So the, the sermon, this sermon almost has two parts, okay? The first part, going to the Samaritan. The second part, Simon. So go back to verse 9, and we're going to kind of dig in deep here and look at this man named Simon. Who is he? What's he about? What happens? Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And so we don't know exactly who Simon is. We don't know exactly what's going on. Some translations will say like Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician, Simon Magus. Like there's different ways we kind of know about him. But essentially Simon is someone who is like amazing people with something that he's doing, right? He may be kind of like a charlatan. He's kind of tricking people, like thinking he has these magical powers. It may be that he even is kind of like dealing with like dark demonic things. And he actually is able to do certain kinds of healings and things, not using the power of God, but using the power of the devil. We don't know exactly what's going on. But we know that the people of his day look at Simon and they go, he has some power that is amazing. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, and even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. But now look down at verse 18. After the apostles come and lay hands on everyone, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hand may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Okay. That's the story of Simon. And, and, it, and the reason it's in the Bible is because they're supposed to like look closely at it and pay attention and go, like, what is here for us? Simon, the magician, he's this powerful person among the people, and he has this like seemingly radical life transformation, right? Like the text is really interesting because it goes from him being in the city and everyone is amazed by him, and the first part of the story ends with him being amazed by what he's seeing with Philip and the power of God. And it isn't just that he's amazed, but he actually, it says that he believes. He gets baptized. But in the end, we're told that he doesn't have any part or lot in this matter. In other words, he doesn't know God at all. 
that actually even though he was walking through some of the same motions that everyone else is, what he was doing with his life had nothing to do with Christianity. And so what, what I want to do with the rest of this talk is just look at three things. Three things that Simon misses about the gospel. And in missing them, when Peter confronts him, he's like, this is not a small miss, Simon. This is a massive miss. You have no part in this at all. You are doing something completely other than following Jesus. He misses the gospel in three key ways. He misses the grace of the gospel, the gift of the gospel, and the glory of the gospel. And, and I want to show you what I mean, okay? So Simon's been following Philip around, and he's seen people be healed, and he's seen, like, demons be cast out of people. Like, that's a really powerful thing to witness. And now he sees these two apostles laying hands on people, and he watches them receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he comes to them and he tries to trade some of his fortune that he's amassed as this magician over years. He tries to trade some of that for the apostles to give him that same power. And the way that Peter responds is, is stunning. Like we should be stunned by what he says. Because he says, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. May your silver perish with you. This, this word perish is like the word for destruction. And it isn't just destruction, it's like eternal destruction. And like, what, like another way to translate this would be like, he, Peter's saying like, to hell with you and your money, Simon. Like, get out of here. The reason that Peter says Simon has no part or lot with them is because he thought that he could obtain the gift of God with money. That's what he says, right? This is why I'm telling you this. Why I'm telling you to perish with your money because you think that you can obtain the gift of God with money. And the reason that Peter says this to Simon is because Simon has failed to accept and humble himself under one of the most central parts of the good news of Jesus. It's grace. It's the first thing Simon misses is he misses the grace of the gospel. One of the easiest ways to miss the gospel is actually to miss its most central theme. The good news of Jesus is a story of grace, right? And we, we come to church, that makes sense to us. And grace sounds like something that is easy to receive, but grace is not something that is easy to receive. Because in order to actually receive grace, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are inadequate in and of ourselves, the good news is the story of God doing something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. It's the story of God taking the punishment that we had earned upon himself, becoming an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it is from this act of grace, his grace. It's from being attached to this crucified savior through faith in his death and resurrection that every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms flows to us. What it means to receive grace is to humble yourself under the reality that you don't just need help crossing the finish line, right? It isn't like I've got 80% of this and I really need your grace to get the last 20 because I am really needy here. And it isn't even that we just need his grace to like take the first steps of this and we need his grace the whole way along our journey. No, it's more than that. You actually need someone from the very first step to the very last step to run the race for you. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why he lived the perfect life. 
That's why he died on a cross. That's why he rose from the dead. You couldn't run the race at all. He had to do it for you. That's grace. That's what the gospel is about. There are no impressive Christians. There are no impressive Christians. The reason that Christians boast only in the cross of Christ, only to his cross do I cling, is the only thing we boast in. It's because we don't have anything else of value to boast in. It's the only thing we have. I remember texting my dad like a while ago. I'm turning 30 and I'm like kind of thinking about my life and I'm texting him and saying, Dad, like, thank you for introducing me to Jesus. Like this has changed everything about my life. Thank you. And his response is just, it's the only thing I had to give you. I'm like, yes, like, yes, that's true. Our money, our knowledge, our success, our strength, those things may impress the world and they may even gain you influence and power and they may amaze the people around you, but they do not impress God. What impresses God is humility, repentance, faith. And even though Simon has joined himself to this Christian movement, he wasn't humbled under this reality. He had two view of a too high of a view of himself to think that he had nothing to offer. And so when Simon walks into church, he brings something he deems valuable with him. And for him, it's his money. It's his money. He goes, surely with this, this valuable thing that I've acquired with my life, surely I can make some kind of trade. I can make some kind of barter. And Peter responds to him in the strongest possible terms. Take your money. I hope it perishes with you. Really strong to hear the apostle of God say that to you. What are we tempted to bring with us when we walk into this room? I've been thinking about that a lot this week. What am I tempted to bring with me when we walk into this gathered body of believers, when we come to God, when we come to Jesus? What are we tempted to bring with us? What would we bring with us to try to buy him, to try to barter with him, right? Maybe it's our money, right? It's like, okay, God, I will give you this money. I'm going to donate to this campaign that Rob keeps talking about. But if I do this, then I expect this in return. Okay, God, I will give you my sexual purity. But in return, I expect you to give me a really amazing spouse someday. Okay, God, I'll read my Bible and I will pray and I will do it every day. But if I do this, then I expect this in return from you. The reason that receiving grace and grace alone is so hard is because when you are saved by grace and his grace alone, you have no bargaining power. You have no bargaining power because you have nothing of value to bargain with. You can't barter with someone who is paying the full and complete cost of your salvation. You can't barter with something when you have nothing to bring to the table. This is why Paul says in Corinthians, he says, you don't honor God with your body because in doing so you will put God in your debt and you will be able to, he will be able to give you something you want. That's not what he says. No, he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God with your body. The reason that Simon's story is an axe 
is because he represents some of the most common ways that people miss Jesus. They come to Jesus and they try to follow him. But they always come with something that they deem valuable already in their hands. I have watched this time and time and time again as I have watched people try to follow Jesus, but there is something of value that they have produced that they refuse to let go of. And when you come to Jesus with something already in your hands, you can't grab hold of him. What does Peter say that Simon needs? He says, repentance. He says, repent. Simon, that's what you need. You need repentance. This is what true repentance means. This is what it means to put your faith in Jesus. It isn't just about walking away from your sins and from your old way of life, but it's actually about walking away from the things in your life that you find valuable, the things that you thought you had produced and had value. Real repentance looks like this. It's like you look at your life and you look at all of your sin and all of your failure and everything that defines like, like the old you, like the flaws, the failures, the ways that you have not lived up to your standard or God's, and you put those in a pile. But real repentance means that you also take all your goodness and your good works and the things that you've built yourself, the things that you find valuable about yourself and your life, and you make another pile here. And what repentance looks like is actually to take gasoline and to douse both of those piles and light them both on fire and follow Jesus. Simon didn't do that. He didn't do that. It wasn't his morality and his goodness that he clung to, but it was his status and his money. He wasn't willing to admit that his whole life had been spent in the wrong direction. He wasn't willing to repent of all that he was. And he may believe in Jesus, but he doesn't believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. He didn't believe in Jesus as his savior. His belief in Jesus was about something else. His baptism wasn't about repentance and faith. It, was about ent- it wasn't about entering into a relationship with the God of grace. It was about something different. And the something different is the second thing he misses. is because he doesn't just miss the grace of the gospel, but he misses the gift of the gospel. One of the things that almost always happens with people who who misunderstand grace and they miss grace is they also misunderstand the gift that God's actually trying to give you, okay? I I have a son, Silas. He just turned one, okay? And this is what happens with with Silas, a really fun thing, right? You're teaching him, trying to teach him everything about the world. He's one year old. He's fascinated by everything. The book we read the other night is literally a book that just has a picture of a car and it just says, car, picture of a banana, it says banana, right? And this is like his favorite book right now. He just like points at stuff. And when he was like really young, like we'd carry him around in our arms, right? And we'd, we'd, we'd point to things. And he started to figure this out where like you point to this and you're like, speaker, right? He's like, oh, look at the speaker, right? He doesn't, he doesn't talk back yet, but he, you can tell he gets it, right? And so his new thing is he points at everything. So we're carrying him around and he'll just be like, and I'll be like, wall. He points to this, I'm like, dog. And you know, and he's just, he's learning, Right? And so he's figured this thing out where you point at something, and what is this? It's a sign, right? It's like this pointing sign that says, I'm pointing at this speaker, right? We also have a dog. Her name is Arlo. My one-year-old is already far smarter than our dog, okay? Because our dog doesn't understand this, right? And I'll be with Arlo, and I'll be like, Arlo, squirrel. And I'll point, it's a squirrel. Arlo will look Right here, okay? Right here. No matter where you're pointing, the dog will look right here. And you're like, Arlo, look over here. And Arlo will look here, and she'll just follow your hand, right? Just follow your hand. 
she doesn't understand how pointing works at all, okay? She doesn't get it. She doesn't able to like follow the thing that you're using to point to something. She's not able to follow it to the source of the thing you're pointing to. That is exactly Simon's problem. It's exactly what Simon is doing. Instead of seeing the signs and wonders and letting them lead him to the thing that they're pointing to, he has stopped and he has become obsessed with the sign itself. Right? This is his goal. He's seen a power that is greater than his own and he is amazed. So he makes his goal to get the power, not to get God. His goal is to get something that God can give him. In other words, for Simon, God is not valuable in and of himself. God is only valuable for him insofar as God gives him what he really wants, which is power. Right? These signs and wonders, these miraculous things that are happening at the hands of the apostles and at the hands of Philip, what's the point of them? The point of them is that we would see that power and say, oh my goodness, I want the God that power is talking about. The point of healing is not to say, I want God's healing power in my life. The point is to say, I want to have a relationship with the author of life himself from whom that healing flows. Simon doesn't understand that. He doesn't care. It isn't just that Simon thought he could buy the gift of God with money. The problem is that he was actually valuing the completely wrong thing. What is that for you? Like all, all of this, right? Church, God's people, your Christianity, your faith. What is it about? What is the goal of all of it? Is your goal to know God or is your goal to get something from him? I've been thinking about these questions a lot this week. Like for me, like what is my goal in all of this? Like being a pastor, reading my Bible, praying, trying to pursue some level of relationship with God. How much of it is it about a pursuit of God for who he is and how much of it is it a pursuit of God for what he can give me? Because this is a really hard thing. Because it's hard to separate out God, who he is from what he does, it's hard to separate out those things. But if you love the things he gives you more than God himself, it's a really big problem. This distinction between seeing the gift of God as God himself or seeing the gift of God as something God can do for you or give you, getting this right will be one of the most important things that will define your walk with Jesus the entire rest of your life. I really mean that. That distinction between the gift that God has given you is God himself or it is something that God gives you, his power, his strength, his healing, his ability to work miracles in your life. That distinction, what you think is the actual true gift, getting that right will be one of the most important things that will define the rest of your walk with Jesus. Because if you get this wrong, then you will shipwreck your faith when the waves and rocks of life come into your story. Because when your child gets sick and they are laying on the hospital bed with tubes going in and out of every corner of their body, this is what will matter. Because in the moment when God doesn't work the miracle and he doesn't save the one you love, 
But he simply promises that through the pain and the suffering, he will be with you. How you answer this question is what will matter if you keep following Jesus or not. This is what will matter when you're dry heaving over the toilet for the 10th time that month because the person that you have married has cheated on you and is filing a divorce and everything that you cared about in life, your whole life story is spinning completely out of control. What matters is whether you wanted God because you thought he was going to give you a good family or whether you wanted God for him and him alone. If you put your faith and your value and your love on something God can give you above God himself, then you will not be able to weather those storms when they come. That is a weak, anemic faith that does not have lasting power because it's not real faith in God. But more than that, if you come to love something that God can give you more than God himself, then you are an idolater. It means that your belief in Jesus and your Christianity is not about worshiping God, but it's actually merely a tool for you to get the thing that you truly love and worship. So the question is, do you love God or do you love the the things that God gives you? Is it enough that God would promise to be with you in the downturned economy, right? When your business fails and your home gets taken from you, or is God only valuable insofar as he gives you financial peace and security? Because that's a really, really big difference. Simon, he misses the gift. The thing he's focused on is supposed to lead him to the actual gift, which is God himself. But he's not concerned with God. He just wants the power that's right in front of him. He misses the gift, but he also misses the glory. And this is is the last thing. The reason that Simon gets distracted by the power of God instead of following that sign back up to the source, is because Simon isn't concerned with the glory of God because he's way too distracted with his own glory. When we meet Simon, his goal is to win the praise of all the people around him, right? They say that he is amazing. They say that he is great. They say that he's the power of God that is called great. And when Philip comes on the scene with a power that's greater than his, proclaiming the name of Jesus and his story, he is amazed. He's amazed by that. But what is he amazed by? He's amazed by the wrong thing. He isn't amazed by a God who had died for his sins. He isn't amazed by one who paid the price for his salvation. He isn't amazed by the story of the suffering Savior. No, he isn't amazed by the glory of God. He's amazed just by God's power. Why? Because he thinks that he can use that power for his glory. And that's what he's about. He's about himself, his glory, his greatness. He doesn't come to God because he thinks God is great. He comes to God because he thinks something about God can keep making him great. Whose glory are we here for this morning? Whose glory are we here for this morning? This was a very real battle that Simon was fighting, his glory versus God's. And this is the same battle that every single one of us face every single day. Who will sit on the throne of our heart? Is it you or is it God? This is why Simon couldn't receive the grace of God. This is why he couldn't receive the grace of God because the grace of God was about his glory, God's glory. It wasn't about his. 
This is why he couldn't see God as the true gift because Simon's value system was only centered around himself and his glory. God was merely a tool to get him more of that. And what's really sad about this story is that church history tells us that Simon fought this battle for the very rest of his life. We're told from church history that he never did repent. But as Christianity grew and more and more people began to follow Jesus, Simon would become one of the opponents of the church. All the while claiming to himself and all of his followers and the people around him that he himself was something great. He actually became one of like the opponents of the early church, saying that he himself was just as glorious and he had just as much glory as anything that King Jesus had. And I don't think we would say these words out loud, but that's like the struggle that is in our hearts, isn't it? God's glory, Jesus being king, humbling ourselves under his free grace or trying to earn some glory and some greatness for ourselves. We don't say that out loud, but Simon does. And we're told that in the end, Simon is so entrenched in living for his own glory that in the end, he dies for his own glory. We're told that he was so convinced of his own greatness and his own glory that he prophesied his own resurrection just like Jesus. And in his arrogance and in his foolishness and in his unrepentant heart, Simon would have his followers bury him alive with the promise that three days later he would rise again and be great just like Jesus. He never got out of the grave. He, he, he died pursuing his greatness and his glory. The story of Simon is in the Bible because this temptation is inside every single one of us. It's in every single one of us. Whose glory will we live for? What gift will we seek after? What kind of grace will we allow ourselves to receive the good news of Jesus, it always strips us of all that we have, right? We all come to the cross of Jesus empty-handed, humbled, desperate, and needy, but we, we do not come with a glory of our own, but it does this so that it can give us something greater, right? The glory of God, the gift of God himself, and grace that is so full and complete that only something as valuable as the blood of the Son of God himself could possibly buy it. This is the narrow road that Jesus calls us down. Not that we would be people who walk in and say, Jesus, I need some grace to reach the finish line. The narrow road of following Jesus is that we would be humble, repentant people that say, Jesus, I have nothing of value to bring. I need grace and grace alone. The narrow road of Christianity is not pursuing something that God gives you as the thing you value. The narrow road of Christianity is seeing the God of grace who bled out and died for you and being so consumed by him that you go, even if he doesn't heal me, I don't care because the thing I want is to be with him. Why? Because you see his glory. Doxa Church. Acts is filled with stories of God doing unbelievably amazing things. And every once in a while, we land in one of these passages where you see someone who would be someone sitting in this room with us 
And instead of following the narrow path to Jesus, the hard path of humility and repentance and faith, they end up leaving that to pursue something for themselves, their own glory. Let us not be that church. Let us be a church that follows the narrow path all the way home, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, those words of Peter have just rung in my ears this week that, God, I feel like there's so many times where that's just my story, God. I, I, I come to you with something in my hand and I'm like, Jesus, I've got this and I've, I've been reading my Bible really well. I've been trying to serve my family and so God, you, you owe me something. And Jesus, I just hear in this passage you just calling me back to just the simple gospel of repentance and faith. And so Jesus, we just come before you and Jesus, we repent of any of our self-righteousness that would think that we don't actually need you to buy our salvation, that we can buy it ourselves. Jesus, we repent of any kind of misplaced value that, that we would actually value something you would give us more than a relationship with you itself. And Jesus, we come before you as repentant people, repenting for any way that we have tried to live for our own glory this week or even this morning, and we just come back and we say, we want your grace. We receive it as people who desperately need it. We receive the gift of yourself, and we want to be people that live for your glory. Make it so, Jesus.